Welcome to the Homestead Gardening in the Texas Gulf Coast podcast with Kristen Howard. Today I'm going to share with you how I start seeds and establish more challenging warm season plants from the nightshade family, including peppers, tomatoes, and eggplant. I'm also going to share with you the varieties I'm growing because they are very diverse, colorful, boast incredible flavor, and I'm honestly curious to know what you think about them. And finally, I'll share how I keep these plants, treating them like perennials or more woody vegetable plants as they age. So if you're interested, you can consider keeping them year after year instead of starting these seeds once more. There are many edible plants that can be easily started from seed outdoors, directly sown into your prepared garden beds. But for those more challenging seeds that take longer to germinate or take a longer time to establish root systems, you may need to take the seed starting activity indoors. This is going to allow you to monitor your seedlings more closely during that long germination and establishment period, reduce competition from weeds, prevent natural weather events from diminishing your successes, and give you control to create the microclimate these seeds need to thrive. This practice will help extend your growing season with a spring and fall crop from your plants. And in the long run, you can save money because you won't be buying expensive adult plants year after year. The best time to start these warm season plants is in the winter indoors, at least six to eight weeks before your last frost date. The tools you need to start these seeds include a heat mat, deep containers that can hold water with a lid, four inch landscape pots, fully hydrated soilless medium, garden markers, outdoor labels, and a grow light. Let's talk about these materials a little bit more. So for a heat mat, I don't know if there are multiple brands or not. Every video I see shows a heat mat that looks absolutely identical to mine. But either way, I really can't imagine any heat mat brand is going to be different from another. In my YouTube video, I have a really, really small version of a heat mat. and It's not the one that I use. I actually bought this so long ago that I don't even know that it works. It was just so small. It was a great grab and go for the video. My actual heat mat is 48 inches long and it's usually tucked underneath my uh, rack where I keep all of my plants on the lower level. Our next material, the deep containers that hold water with a lid, you can substitute for really any reservoir that you can wrap plastic wrap over. What we're trying to do is create a humidity dome in addition to having that reservoir. So I use anything that isn't cracked, but that is no longer useful in the house. I try not to buy anything new and I reuse anything I can when I start seeds in general. I just don't see the point in going to the trouble to start my own seeds instead of buying full-size adult plants If I'm going to spend a bunch of money starting seeds beyond the obvious necessary purchases of the heat mat, grow light, and the fresh soilless medium. And of course, the plastic wrap or lid is going to keep all of that humidity in and it is critical. Your grow station is not going to work for this application unless you have that one piece of the puzzle. You can use any size landscape pot to do this. But I really like to use the four inch pots because with some of the other sizes, you run into some trouble. 
Most people's seeds start in smaller pots that are connected. And I found that to be a real problem because some seeds are going to germinate faster than others. You may just have some variability with the actual types of seeds or the depths that you planted them. And you want to make sure that your pots can easily separate and you can change the growing conditions on the fly. I will actually wash and reuse all my pots until they're actually splitting along the sides. Many people will donate pots to me, and that's why if you see in the background of any of my videos, I might have random pots sort of everywhere. I try to get rid of the larger pots by putting compost in them and giving them away as gifts, or planting in the pots and then giving those plants away at the spring and fall local plant swaps, but for whatever reason, these larger sizes seem to be the pots I get gifted the most. They're honestly too big and heavy to really be functional for me, and yet not big enough for the permanent greenhouse residents that I have. And I actually just use grow bags for those greenhouse larger plants anyways, because I can lift everything by the strap super easily all on my own. But those four inch pots that I am gifted are absolute gold, especially the really thick plastic pots like the red pot used in the YouTube video example, because this plastic is strong enough to wash and store and keeps me a little bit more organized in the flimsy pots that blow around. But I found that I use the flimsy pots the most because I actually want them to get used up the fastest and get them out of my house so I don't feel obligated to keep them anymore. Last week, I posted a teaser Instagram reel for the YouTube and podcast and I mentioned fully hydrated soilless medium, and I got some questions. So a soilless medium is a peat moss or cocoa core and a perlite mix, and very few people use straight peat moss, and for this application, you absolutely do not want to use straight peat moss. You want to mix in that perlite. I think in big box stores, you're going to find this called maybe a potting mix instead of a potting soil. It basically holds moisture better than soil, so these baby roots don't immediately dry out. But to go a step further, this soilless medium is sterile in the bag, or at least it's supposed to be. And if we're applying heat and warmth to the soil, we're going to grow some funky stuff in normal soil before our peppers, eggplants, or tomatoes even think about germinating. So growers opt to use a soilless medium because it is devoid of bacteria, fungus, and all beneficial and non-beneficials that will get funky or stinky or rot your seeds. And to clarify even further, Soil is living. Soil has living things in it. And a soilless medium does not or should not have anything living in it until you make it so. I use the Artline brand of garden marker. It is specifically for marking on plant labels. It's water resistant and fade resistant. It's exactly like writing with a felt tape marker and I freaking love them. This is what I used when I hybridized roses last year to mark my cross-pollinated rose hips, and it's the only marker that will maintain writing for a long period of time when exposed to the sunlight. It will not write on a wet surface, though, but it will resist the water droplets right away after writing because it dries extremely quickly, like a Sharpie marker. And no, Sharpie markers do not hold up to outdoor conditions that are directly in the sunlight. For the YouTube video, I used classic thick plastic purchased outdoor labels. In real life, however, I cut up the cloudy or clear distilled water jugs since I use those a ton. The cloudy jugs are easier to read in the garden, but the clear are sturdier and can really take a beating. 
Before you start your seeds, it's a good idea to set up your grow light in advance because you're going to need this ready about a week after starting seeds, and if you're really successful, much sooner than that. I don't have great advice for what to use as a grow light. I've heard so much information from people on the internet and everyone is so certain of themselves that I really want to trust them, but there is a huge range of pricing and setup and you really almost have to choose for yourself based on what you can afford, what size works best for you, and so on and so forth. My setup has 6400K T5 fluorescent tubes and this spectrum allows the light bulbs to replicate natural sunlight and encourage plant growth and propagation. I've heard from my flimsy research that the recommended is about 6,000K full spectrum LED, but I'm not 100%. Fluorescents emit heat, so it's more difficult to prevent my plants from drying out by the end of the day. I don't know if other growers do this or not, but I only let my plants grow for the actual daylight time that they're used to receiving when they grow outdoors, and then I turn off the lights. I'm wondering if other growers leave their lights on full time and are getting bigger plants than me, but if you want to grow the day length like me, a timer would be a really helpful part of your setup. Last but not least, you will of course need seeds. And later in this episode, I'll tell you all about what I'm growing. So let's go through the steps to create your growing station and get your seeds started. Start by hydrating your soilless medium. I'm using a 60-40 mix of perlite and cocoa core, adding distilled water, and letting the mix absorb the water for about an hour before using it. While you're waiting, gather the rest of your supplies and set up your heat mat and growing station. When the soilless medium is ready to use, fill your 4-inch pots to the top, but don't pack the soilless medium into the pots. You will be watering from the bottom of the pot so that the soil structure will remain light and airy during the growing process that bottom watering is going to maintain this airspace that the roots are going to need. Label your outdoor labels with the name of your plant variety and the start date and place each in its designated pot. Add your seeds to each pot and make sure you follow instructions for the seed depth, but for most of these seeds, the depth will be about two times the thickness of the seed. Fill your containers with one inch of distilled water, add your pots, Cover with a lid or plastic wrap and place these on top of the heat mat. Your heat mat should not be directly under a grow light at this time in the growing process though. And a tip while you're waiting on your seedlings to sprout is to start forming the habit of checking twice a day on that growing station to see how it's doing. If your seeds are fresh and your station is set up correctly, you will probably have germination sooner than expected. In my case, the shortest germination for my seeds was seven days, and my eggplant and tomato popped up in less than five days. The way you know your growing station is working correctly is that you will see humidity throughout that container and on top of that plastic wrap or lid. Once your seedlings emerge, you can move them under the grow light. If some of your seedlings in a single pot have not emerged, you can move your entire growing station under the grow light to continue to speed up germination for the last few seeds while your seedlings still can get plenty of light at the same time. This means your heat mat, container, and pots can all move under the grow light, and I usually try to cover ungerminated areas of my pot with a little plastic until I see some green growth propping up. 
Now you're not supposed to leave your plants on the heat mat and in that container with the water reservoir for too long after germination. I was in a huge hurry to help my husband overcome an illness, clean, cook, and prep for holiday traveling during this stage of my growing, and I didn't pay close enough attention to what I was supposed to do. My plants did remain on the heat mat and in the container with bottom watering for about two weeks longer than they should have. I wasn't thinking about the obvious issue. I was risking suffocating and drowning my baby roots. But here's the thing. It really didn't cause me any problems in the long run because the reservoir ran out of water faster under the grow light, and I was so busy that I honestly think the opposite problem would have happened if I hadn't accidentally done that. I think I would have forgotten to water and look after my plants, and they would have dried, burned up, you name it. They'd be goners. Plus, when I traveled, my husband was in charge of the whole setup, and there's no way he would have remembered to check on them frequently enough to keep them alive. If anything, I grew a lot of roots for a lot of plants, and hopefully once they grow a little more top growth, I can separate them into their own containers and see how they're doing, maybe even weed out a few weaker ones. I did see some stress from the tops of a few eggplant and tomato when I returned from traveling, and I immediately removed my setup, and now just have plants under the grow light, but not before I took a little video to illustrate that the problems for overwatering sometimes look like the plant needs more water, which is the common mistake I'll see all the time. As long as I didn't rot those roots, they will be fine. So your takeaway should be that if you're seeing signs of stress from your seedling and you are a really amazing caregiver, you are more likely overwatering than underwatering. So if your soil is wet still, back off the watering and wait for the plant to recover and dry out a little bit. So let's talk about these seeds I have. Droning on and on about seed starting is super fun and all, but I'm not in this for the process, I'm in this for the food. First, I'll say I don't eat half the things I'm growing from this list of seed starts I'll share today. I just really like the colors and potential for expanding my culinary horizons. That's not to say the food doesn't get eaten. The food gets eaten, but when you hear the list, you'll understand why I'm not the one eating it. Also, I don't grow only the food I eat, because that's just too limiting. Instead, I like to grow everything I possibly can and then focus on plants that are more abundant or easier to grow so that in future years when I'm tired, I can fall back on those successful crops. All right, let's dive into the list. So this year, I'm only growing one type of bell pepper. Bell pepper is actually my favorite fruit. Hands down, if it wasn't weird to walk around the Texas German Festival eating a red bell pepper like an apple, I'd do it. I am a weirdo, but I have my limits. I'm only growing one bell pepper because I know I can swap other gardeners for more peppers. That's what I did last year, and that's what I'll do again. Take to the internet, and you'll find people willing to swap plants year-round in Houston. My bell pepper variety is Yellow Monster from Baker Creek, and I have plans to grow the monster I am promised. This is one of the varieties included in the giveaway this week. I'm also growing a ton of hot peppers. I grew Scotch Bonnet two years ago. I think I purchased a full flat of four inch pot Scotch Bonnet plants, and only two of them died. So I grew about 16 total plants, and from those, I had a double crop spring and fall but was basically harvesting daily during each crop for several weeks 
and ended the season with a lot of green before the first frost. The reason why I grew so many is because I didn't want to grow hot peppers again for five years, and these will dehydrate and last about that long without special storage. But here I am two years later, growing peppers again. There's a good chance I will skip nightshades all together next year and rely just on frozen or dehydrated foods, but we'll see. My hot pepper list includes Puma, which boasts beautiful color, flavor, and a habanero heat, Buena Mulata, which is a gorgeous slender purple that reminds me of an ornamental pepper, but then it changes color from like a peach to a red. Sugar Rush Peach, which is supposed to taste tropical and smoky and complex. Datil, which apparently has vicious heat, and I really love the descriptions Baker Creek has for their pot peppers. Brazilian Starfish, which I just bought to see if it tastes like the Scotch Bonnet peppers I grew because they look really similar, but these are said to have a variable heat and may be quite sweet, which sometimes happens with the hot peppers. Tobago seasoning, which is used in jerk seasoning in the Caribbean. I think this actually might be closer in taste to that sweet heat like the Scotch bonnet actually. And black Hungarian, which is an ornamental dark black pepper with mild heat. I'm going to botch this name, but Luschwire paprika, which is going to be in line with your classic paprika flavor. And then we get to the real hotties. Chocolate habanero, which has gorgeous color. Chocolate seven pot, again, gorgeous. Apocalypse scorpion, death spiral, and Carolina reaper, which are all going to transition into that crazy red. Y'all, let me tell you, don't be an idiot and harvest any of these peppers, even the mild heat peppers without gloves on. I've had to sleep in my contacts several times after a harvest because I was not thinking. And I don't mean wear your garden gloves to harvest. I mean, go buy nitrile protective gloves and then throw them away after you use them. By the way, the Scotch Bonnet, Buena Mulata, and Paprika are all going to be seeds in the giveaway this week along with the Yellow Monster Bell Pepper. My tomato list is still interesting, but there won't be as much of a flavor profile that I'm going to personally notice. I'm growing Cherokee Purple, Black Creme, and Black Cherry, which will have a similar taste that all black tomatoes will have. I never describe this flavor very well, but my memory always recalls a fishy taste, so I usually keep that to myself. But most people will say that purple black tomatoes are the supreme tomato. However, I'm usually not wrong about flavors I pick out from vegetables. <laughs> I have yet to grow enough black tomato at once to cook with it, and I'd really like to change my opinion about this tomato flavor. I'm growing two kinds of grape tomatoes, Brad's Atomic and Agropoli di Averno, which is said to be a small version of Aroma Tomato. Brad's Atomic is beautiful, but I've heard polarizing reviews of both horrible and amazing. I'm just growing it for the colors, and we'll see how things go from there. I'm also growing Green Doctor, a cherry tomato, and White Tomasol, a half-pound fruit, and Amish paste, because why not? Black Creme, Cherokee Purple, White Tomasol, and Green Doctor are all in the seed giveaway as well this week. Last but not least are my eggplant varieties. I'm growing a Casper and Japanese white egg, which are both white, and an early long and rosita, which are both purple. Rosita is a great option for the Houston area, and the rest just kind of looked fun and weird. Early long and rosita are also in the seed giveaway. A few seeds that I misplaced 
before I started all of these together. And we'll have to start later, include an orange accordion tomato, which sounds super cool. It's going to be this like crazy huge ribbed uh, tomato. And from what I've seen in the pictures, it looks like some of the flowers will fruit together and the fruit will combine and just create these crazy shapes out of those tomatoes. I'm also missing a striped eggplant and something called a Cookstown orange eggplant. Now the orange color of that eggplant is actually the color it turns as it forms seeds and fully ripens, and you never pick eggplant when it's in that fully ripe stage. I'm seeing this online listed as Turkish orange, and then there's also something called pumpkin on a stick, which I thought when I saw this at the seed swap, it was a tomato, but it's actually an eggplant. So there's a chance all three of these are the exact same fruit, but who really knows? Pumpkin on a stick is the new popular thing. I just saw a whole bunch of the seed swap this year for the first time. I saw them in the grocery stores for the first time in the floral section. So if you're looking for something sort of weird and maybe something you want to add as a fall decoration, you can actually grow eggplant and then bring it indoors. Kind of weird. Um, I'm also going to be growing and keeping my adult fairy tale eggplants, an adult bell pepper, and cuttings from an adult Roma tomato that I took before the freeze, which is going to lead me to my next thought. So you don't have to actually start seeds every year for these plants. It's kind of crazy that a lot of new gardeners think plants just get thrown away at the end of each year, at the end of each season. And I did too for a very long time until I started doing some digging and I really liked what I found. So tomato plants root incredibly easy from the stem. Pretty much anywhere where that tomato is going to touch the ground or touch something wet like leaves, vegetation, uh, weeds in my case is always what it's going to be grabbing. It's going to try to grow roots. It's really crazy. And you may not know that you're supposed to heavily prune your tomato during the growing season to remove extra vegetative growth and any sort of branching that doesn't belong but all of these stem pieces can root as well. So instead of covering my indeterminate at the end of the year, I cut them into pieces and potted them up. And indeterminate tomatoes are those vining tomatoes that just go on and go on and go on forever. Eggplant and peppers can be left in the garden if you have time to cover and uncover them in between weather events. If I leave these plants in the garden or pot them up, I still remove a lot of growth, at least one third or more for two reasons. First, I want the plant to stop producing fruit as the temperature drops, and I want it to focus on growing roots. I want to have something more manageable that I can transplant and cover as well. I opted to transplant all of my eggplant into pots, and then one pepper was transplanted from another location back into the garden, and two were moved into the greenhouse. It's incredibly easy how you can transplant and reestablish a plant if it's already healthy. So there you go. If you don't want to start seeds over and over again, but you still want free plants, those are some other options for you. Thanks so much for learning with me. I hope today's episode gave you the confidence and the tools to start some nightshades indoors this winter. I'd love to hear about the varieties you are growing now or are planning to grow in the warm season. You can find me on Instagram at turnyourheadandscoff or Facebook group Homesteaded Gardening for the Texas Gulf Coast if you'd like to connect and share your garden stories with me. Also, don't forget, on those two platforms, 
Q&A Fridays are your opportunity to ask questions or ask more information on this episode. For a visual aid to this specific type of seed starting, this week's sister YouTube episode shares these steps with you in a short five minute episode. If you're like me and love to read, check out my garden blog when you need a refresher on this information. New articles are added regularly, including recaps of each week's episode and reviews of my favorite plants growing in the test garden. And in case you were wondering, this episode was brought to you by my real job. As a landscape designer and the owner of HDG Landscape Design, I have had the privilege of working with a wide range of clients and properties in the Houston area for nearly a decade. If you're interested in having a beautiful outdoor living and pool area, landscape or edible garden, and you don't know how to turn your ideas into reality, consider using professional design services. Designs, consultations, and educational services are available on my website, and you can find all the information in the podcast description.